Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Who, what, when, where, why? My esteemed grandfather spent his career as a journalism prof down at Oregon State, go Beavs. And he always taught us who, what, when, where, and why. Those are the questions a journalist asks. Well, today we're going to focus on one of those questions. We're going to focus on the who, because the who in Acts chapter 15 is what it's all about. See, there are some new who's in the mix in the book of Acts, and the followers of the way of Jesus now have to figure out how these who's fit in. What's happened is that, much to everybody's surprise, there are Gentiles who are trusting in Jesus, who are choosing Jesus, who are joining the way of Jesus. The problem is that these new who's aren't Jews. Not being a Jew means a lot of things, but right now what one group is focusing in on is that the who's not being Jews means the who's haven't been circumcised. And circumcision is the marker of being a part of the people of God. This group, these certain individuals from Judea, as Sachs calls them, are saying that these new Gentile Christians can't be saved, can't be a part of God's people unless they become like Jews and are circumcised. You know, I hesitate a little to talk about circumcision <laughs> because the last time I preached about circumcision, it was at a church I served up in Issaquah, where I was preaching in view of a call. It was my interview weekend. And I can't even remember what the sermon was about, but I know that the ocean was in it and uncircumcision and circumcision and boats and something about venturing out onto the waters of faith. I don't fully remember, but afterwards I'm standing around and I'm chatting with people and 95-year-old Roy, jo Roy Jones comes up to me and says, well, pastor, I really identified with your sermon. I was on a boat in World War II, and I'm uncircumcised. <laughs> Almost nothing is TMI for me. But that, that was TMI. What struck me, though, is that Roy, whose name has been changed for privacy purposes, Roy was proud of not being circumcised. It actually meant something to him. Like uncircumcision meant something to Roy, circumcision means something, something to these Christians from Judea. See, they're not fighting for something that's negative. They're fighting for a positive. Circumcision was a positive practice, a practice that shaped people, a practice that had made the Jewish community into a uniquely Jewish community. 
a practice that was fundamentally seen as a gift that set the Jews apart, marked them as God's people in the world. It made them special. You know, maybe a way for us to understand all of this is to look at the practice of priestly celibacy. Now, I'm sure that there are as many opinions on priestly celibacy in the Catholic Church as there are Catholics. But for those of us who aren't Catholics, I think a lot of us look at the practice of priests not marrying and go, how has this practice hung around for so long? Why can't Catholics just toss it out? Well, yesterday I talked with our resident church historian, Christina Moss, to make sure I was getting some of this right. And she reminded me that it wasn't until the 12th century that celibacy was required for priests. Priestly celibacy isn't an unchangeable dogma for Catholics. It's a disciplinary rule. Christina was telling me that the practice of celibacy for priests arose originally from monastic communities that had long practiced celibacy. So why is it stuck around for so long? It's stuck around for so long because for many, many people, the practice of priestly or religious life celibacy is a good. It's a positive. It's rooted in the words of the apostle Paul. It is better not to marry than to marry. If you don't marry, you don't have to please your spouse. You can just please God. Celibacy is seen as freeing. Without a spouse or children, you can wholeheartedly dedicate yourself to doing God's work in the world. A communal commitment to this practice, rooted in scripture, rooted in God's will, is strong enough to make a way of life possible when it couldn't have been possible in any other way. And what I'm specifically thinking about is nuns in the Middle Ages. The celibate religious life was a blessing for many, many women during the Middle Ages. It was basically the only alternative to getting married. Being a nun opened up a way of life not possible otherwise. That female life outside of marriage created space for women intellectuals. In fact, other than one-on-one -on -one tutoring, convents were basically the only place a woman could get an education. One thing Christina told me yesterday that was so fascinating is just how many seven-year-old girls knew that they were going to go into the religious life. As Christina said, how bad is your example of does your example of marriage have to be in order to know at age seven, you definitely do not want to get married? Actually, my favorite thing Christina said was, if I were a man in the Middle Ages, I would want to get married. If I were a woman, hell no. <laughs> Going into religious life was one of the very few avenues open for women to do something different with their lives. History like that creates a legacy. It creates loyalty to practices. When people have experienced a practice such as celibacy, to be freeing, to be empowering, 
What is the response going to be when someone wants to stop that practice? This is what Christians from Judea who are insisting on circumcision are feeling. They are feeling like the baby is getting tossed out with the bathwater. These new Gentile Christians are great, but is Israel's history with God going to get erased? Is the covenant going to be forgotten? Will the Jewishness of the gospel of Jesus disappear? Because there are a lot more uncircumcised Gentiles in the world than there are circumcised Jews. These are founded fears. These are fears that in many ways have been realized in history. These believers have good reason to insist on circumcision. But here's the problem. I'm not gonna go too far in it, <laughs> but circumcision it's a really big ask. What would you do if you fell in love with Jesus, wanted to commit yourself to his way, and then learned that you needed to practice, let's say, genital mutilation? This is why Paul and Barnabas get into a big old argument with their fellow believers from Judea who want the Gentiles circumcised. As Acts delicately puts it, there was no small dissension and debate. So I want to look at what happens here in Acts, because I think what happens here in Acts 15 is incredibly helpful for us, the church, today. I think it can teach us how to disagree well with one another. So first, what happens in Acts is disagreement, conflict. Conflict is normal, even in the early church. Maronite Church USA, our denomination, has a wonderful little document called Agreeing and Disagreeing in Love. And the very, very first thing the document says is, Accept conflict. Acknowledge together that conflict is a normal part of our life in the church. We are not abnormal when we disagree. We are not necessarily out of God's will when we disagree. Conflict has been there since the book of Acts. There are things we hold dear in our life of faith together, practices that have positive history. And when those are challenged, it is normal to have conflict. So first, conflict is par for the course. Second, we, the church, are called to closely listen to people's experience of life in the church. Acts says that the whole assembly kept silence and listened. The apostles, the elders, they're all gathered. And instead of trying to get their own two cents in, they listen. They listen to Peter describe how God has called these Gentiles, the joy that the Gentiles becoming followers of Christ has brought, and how circumcision is a yoke too heavy to bear. 
the apostles and elders would have been devout Jews. They probably were all circumcised themselves. And yet they listened. They listened to the experience, the testimony of people very different than themselves. And this didn't have to be a firsthand account. It was secondhand. Peter and Paul and Barnabas are relaying the experiences of the Gentiles. Sometimes in church conflict, it is helpful to have for the people being discussed, the who's, not to have to bear the weight of personally telling their stories. Sometimes there are Peters and Pauls who are called to bring testimony on behalf of the new who's who aren't the Jews. Whether it is firsthand, whether it is secondhand, what is important is that we as a church can listen, can keep silent and listen to the experiences of believers who have very different backgrounds than ourselves, even when their differing opinions seem to threaten central practices. So conflict is par for the course. The church, especially church leaders, are called to closely listen to the new who's who are the subject of disagreement. And third, what is unfolding should be in line with scripture. After Peter finishes speaking on behalf of the Gentiles, James speaks up. He says, my brothers, listen, God has looked favorably upon the Gentiles and this agrees with the words of the prophets. As it is written, I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other people may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. James pulls from scripture. James is Bible-based. But you know, there are a whole lot of other verses James could have quoted. He could have quoted Genesis 17, 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. But James doesn't quote Genesis 17, 14. James, who is probably circumcised himself, who probably knew Genesis 17, 14, doesn't use scripture as a weapon. James uses scripture as a joy. James is drawing out what Kim in our greeting this morning called a forehead smacking moment. James is being surprised by scripture instead. So conflict is normal. We're called to listen closely. And what unfolds should help us read scripture even more deeply should cause us to be surprised by the joy of what God is up to in the world. This is what Acts chapter 15 is all about. It's about what God is up to in the world and what God is up to in the world 
is people. It's each and every one of us who are sitting here watching our computer screens. It's each and every one of us as we go about our day-to-day life. Acts chapter 15 is about the who. It's the who that's important to God. It's the lost sheep, the lost coin who Jesus is looking for. So today, as we go from here, remember, we are a people who are about the who's. We listen to the who's. We listen to the experiences of all the who's who are not like us. And then we think about our practices, our practices that are supposed to make life a blessing and not a curse. May you go forward from here in the peace of Christ, who knows each and every one of us. And now we are going to sing um, or listen to hymn number Voices Together 568, Christ Has No Body Here But Ours. (laughs) 